0: And they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Now we have a glorious theme to consider tonight, this theme of the covenant and the cross. The covenant and the cross. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that towering over the wrecks of time is the cross of Christ in which we glory. We ask, O Lord, that we may consider the smallness that we are in Comparison with the giganticness of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to see it as the center, the focus of all time and of all eternity. And help us with the saints of old and the angels innumerable to join in singing, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain. For we ask in Christ's name and to his glory. Amen. All roads lead to Rome, right? Wrong. It's obvious that all roads do not lead to Rome. It may be that the roads of certain terrorists may lead to Rome in order to accentuate their efforts to frighten the world and to make their point. But we know that at least 2,000 years ago, the myth was exploded that all roads do not lead to Rome. Contrary to that fact, All roads lead to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. All the roads of time and all the roads of history, all the avenues of man's success and failure in the world lead to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The word cross is related to the word crux. It is related to the word crisis. It is related to the word critical. The cross is is the center of all things, past, present, and future. Now to understand the cross, in all its fullness, you must see the cross from the perspective of the covenant. The covenant illuminates the cross. The covenant magnifies the cross. The covenant makes it possible to see something of the majesty and the might of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now in in this series, to this point, we have been considering the covenants of our God and seeing them in particular up to the point of the establishment of the covenant of creation. Now this evening we're going to look at where we have come to this point in our study of the covenants by considering them and those topics particularly as they relate to the cross of our lord jesus christ now you remember that shall i be a little modest and say semi inspired diagram that trips that clarifies everything for us it's not exactly inspired it was a little heavenly there you notice but now let's get it down to earth a little bit the covenantal structure of scripture Now what do we have when we talk about the covenantal structure of scripture? We have the very order by which God has unfolded history before us and made clear to us his purposes as they were established from the creation of the world. Now if you break down this covenantal structure of scripture, you begin with the covenant of creation. And in the covenant of creation even you can begin to see the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the very nature as of the covenant as we have found it in Scripture is that a covenant is a bond in blood, a bond of life and death that is sovereignly administered. A covenant may be defined as a bond of life and death that is sovereignly administered. And right in the middle of that covenant definition is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the older saints of the Church of Jesus Christ wrote a little book entitled Cur Deus Homo. That is, why did God become man? It was a work written by a man named Anselm and Anselm was wrestling with the question as to why Jesus Christ had to die. Would not it have been possible simply for God to forgive men's sins without the terribleness of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, he wrestled with that question in this little book, cur deus homo, why did God become man? Now, as you read this ancient little treatise, you can see some positive and some negative elements in terms of Anselm's understanding. Anselm begins by saying, God became man in order that Jesus Christ might die because of the necessity of maintaining the glory of God. Now what Anselm was saying there was that God could not be glorified by a failure in his creation. He could not be glorified if man remained in a fallen condition. Now, I think the Apostle Paul disagrees with Saint Anselm. For as a matter of fact, God in his glory is manifested when he brings righteous judgment on the wicked. And there was no inherent necessity that God saves sinners so that his name might be honored and glorified. God could have been glorified by his bringing a just and righteous judgment upon the sinner. And you need to believe that. You need to understand that God is not under any obligation to save the sinner in order to maintain his glory. God may just as well be glorified in the eternal condemnation of the sinner. But there was another aspect of Anselm's little book, Cur Deus Homo, Why Did God Become Man?, in which he strikes at the center of the thing, why Christ had to die. Theologians since that time have called it, and if you want to write this out, it goes like this the antecedent absolute necessity of the atonement. Now that's worth the price of admission for the evening, right there, isn't it? Just the phrase, it's so impressive. The antecedent absolute necessity of the atonement. Well, let's break it down. It's really not that hard to understand. Antecedent, that's something that goes before. In other words, something went before the absolute necessity of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And what is that antecedent that went before the necessity of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it was the determination of God to save sinful men. Once God committed himself to save sinful men, there was only one way. Even for God, there was only one way. And that was for his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die in the place of sinners. There was no other way open, even for God, If he was to be just and the justifier of the ungodly, he had to sacrifice his own son. What is it that God cannot do? The scripture tells you God cannot lie. God cannot lie. God cannot go contrary to his own nature. And when God made a promise to man to redeem him from his sin, there was no other way other than the death of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that is the antecedent, absolute necessity of the atonement. And the next time you're talking to a a proud sinner, you humble him first of all by showing him that God could be glorified by his condemnation as well as by his salvation. And you show him also that the only way by which God could save the sinner is not just passing over his sins, but providing a righteous substitutionary sacrifice for the sins of men. And all of that is embedded in the concept of the covenant as a bond in blood that is sovereignly administered. God created man originally and said to him, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. He made that commitment. And that was the essence of the covenant of creation. In the day you eat of the forbidden fruit, you shall die, and God cannot lie. So there was only one way out. A death had to occur, and that death is in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the covenant of creation, and at the heart of the covenant of creation is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the cross of Christ I glory powering o'er the wrecks of time. Now let's go on from that point to the covenant of redemption. You understand or you remember as we talked about this lazy V diagram, the idea of the lazy V is to point to the progression of history, to see the movement of history from its beginning point, in which we had only Adam and Eve, to the multitude of people that have developed in the providence of God since that point. And all history has progressed along that covenantal line. Now, once man had failed in the covenant of creation, God was gracious enough to establish the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. Now, here again, you can see that in every phase and stage of the covenant of redemption is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are to see the wonders and the glories of that mighty cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, you must see it from the full perspective of all the history that has preceded up to the point of Christ's crucifixion. Think, first of all, of the origins of the covenant of redemption as it was established in Adam. Here we're talking about the old covenant shadows the forms of the old covenant administration which anticipated the realities of the new covenant. And first of all, God came to Adam. And Lord willing, next week we will be looking at partic- in particular at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, to see that original covenantal bond, that bond of life and death that God established with man upon his fall. But the substance of that is in those words where God says, you, the serpent, shall crush the heel of the seed of the woman, and contrariwise, the seed of the woman that is to come is to crush your, that is, Satan's, head. Here is the bond of God that he established in his word upon man's fall, that Satan would have power. He would have power to crush with a mighty blow the heel of the Savior that was to be born of woman. But even in striking that crushing blow, Satan himself would experience a a deadening blow in which his head would be crushed. Now Paul the Apostle writes about that in Colossians chapter 2. When he says in Colossians chapter 2 that Jesus at the cross spoiled principalities and powers. Now those, that phrase, principalities and powers, as it is found in Colossians chapter 2, is referring to satanic powers. It's referring to demonic powers, to those powers that have the dominion over many expressions of the authorities of men in the world. And what Paul says is that Jesus made an open display of his triumph over all of those satanic powers in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when you see terrible injustices in the world exercised by the powers of government that are established today, when you see awesome and awful things being exercised in the power of man today and see Satan must be behind those things, then understand that in principle already and in fact ultimately the cross of Jesus Christ has broken all of those powers. And that was the covenant that God established with Adam immediately upon his fall. Now going to the covenant with Noah, what do you have in the outpouring of the judgment of the flood? What do you have in the outpouring of the judgment of the flood? What you have there is an anticipation of the judgment that God brought upon his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord cried, the cry of the drowning sinner when he said, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was at that point fulfilling the covenant of Noah, the covenant commitment that God had made that he would preserve the earth. On what basis could God, the righteous judge, preserve the earth that was filled with wickedness and sin and continues to be so? It was on the basis of the Lord Jesus Christ receiving in himself the judgment that sinners deserve. We go on with the covenant with Abraham. And what is established in the covenant with Abraham? Well, in your daily Bible readings this week, you read one of the most dramatic passages of the whole of the Bible. What is that dramatic passage? Well, it's Genesis chapter 22. You can think of Psalm 22, And you can think of Genesis 22, both of them passages that anticipate the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just remind you a little of what goes on in Genesis chapter 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, Abraham replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son the son whom you love and go to the region of moriah sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains i will tell you about now you can hear the cavailing of the critics and they can say obviously abraham was influenced by the sacrifice human sacrifice that was going on in his day he had a dream and Certainly God would never have given such an awful command to him. Well, we need to understand that the wages of sin is death and that every sinner deserves to die and it is God's righteousness that may determine the way that every sinner may die. So it was perfectly within the rightness of God to command Abraham if he should so desire for him to offer his son. Well, you know the sequel And you know also something of the wonder of the faith of Abraham. Did you notice carefully what is stated in verse 5 of that chapter, just interestingly? Abraham said to his servants after they had gotten to Mount Moriah, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you we will worship and we will come back to you. Rather interesting, isn't it? The writer to the Hebrews said that as Abraham was offering his son, he had faith that if necessary, God would raise him from the dead. You see, Abraham had a problem here. He knew, proposition number one, God does not lie. Proposition number two, God said that Isaac is the specific one through whom the seed of promise is to be born. Proposition number three, go kill your son Isaac. Without faith, you reach the conclusion God contradicts himself. But with faith, you say, if necessary, God will raise my son from the dead. Is that the way you live your life? You hear God's promise whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. You pray about something and it doesn't seem to come to pass the way you ask it. What conclusion do you reach? Lack of faith would say, uh-oh, God contradicts himself. But faith says God must have something better. God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that I ask and think. God's timetable may not be the same as mine, but I know God cannot lie. Well, let's just follow just for a moment, just to get something of the feel of the centrality of the cross in the covenant, how this theme of the offering of the Son upon Mount Moriah subsequently appears in scripture. Now, next month for the hearty ones, you're going to be reading First Chronicles, right? You have been looking forward to that little side assignment to reading First Chronicles. Now, as you read 1 Chronicles, persist at least until you get to chapter 21. For there is an amazing chapter. David, in 1 Chronicles 21, sees the angel of the Lord with his sword drawn over Jerusalem. And that sword is a sort of judgment in which judgment is being brought upon the city of Jerusalem because of its sin. Abraham is frozen there. But he determines that he must make an offering. He must make a sacrifice to God. And he goes to a man named Arona, or Aruna. And he goes to Aruna the Jebusite, and he buys a plot of ground for him. Aruna, who also sees that angel with a sword hanging over Jerusalem, says, Oh, quick! take my land, take my cattle, take whatever you like and make an offering, David, if that will appease the Lord and his wrath. And David says, far be it from me to make an offering that costs me nothing. Take note. Far be it from me to make an offering that costs me nothing to my God. I will pay you for this land and I will bring, pay you for my own sacrifices, which he does. And after peace is brought by that sacrifice, the scripture says, then David said, the house of the Lord is to be here and the altar of the burnt offering for Israel. David said, right here at the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite is where the temple of God must be built. For he received my sacrifice and withdrew his hand of judgment over his own people when I offered the sacrifice in this place. And you get it? Not quite yet. Not until you turn to 2 Chronicles. And that assignment will come a little bit later, but we'll look ahead. 2 Chronicles chapter 3. And that's, this is what that verse says. Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah where the Lord had appeared to his father David. It was on the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite, the place provided by David. Doesn't that give you goose pimples? The location of the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite was the same location, Mount Moriah, where Abraham had offered Isaac a thousand years before David. So here is the unity of the covenant promises of God in history. It begins when Abraham journeys for three days to a mountain called Moriah and offers his son, his only son, the son whom he loves. That is the place where King David offers a sacrifice at that same Mount Moriah. That is the place where Solomon builds his great temple and for a thousand years, the sacrifices of the Jewish people are offered on Mount Moriah. And that is the place where Jesus Christ came ultimately and presented himself as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. What is the point of this connection of place? Is it to make holy that place as the Muslims have done in building the Dome of the Rock right there? Or is it as the Jews have done when they say, no Jew should ever dare enter into that temple area because he might defile the most holy place? No, that's just the opposite of the connections of history to that particular place. The point is that all of those old places were only shadows pointing to the one reality of the offering of the Son of God. But the point is to see the center of history, the center of the covenant commitments, not only in the commitment of God's people to sacrifice their most precious things to the Lord, but the commitment of the Lord to sacrifice his most precious thing for the people of God. So in Adam, the cross is there for the seed of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent even as the serpent crushes his heel. That's at the cross. In the case of Noah, that flood of judgment fell upon our Lord Jesus Christ as he suffered for sinners. In the case of Abraham, you have the fulfillment of the covenant provision of forgiveness in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the covenant with Moses. What do you have? All of these laws of sacrifice, all of these, this history of sacrifice, what is involved here? Well, it is all an anticipation of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You remember when Moses lifted up on a pole the serpent in the wilderness? What was the point of the lifting up of the serpent on a pole? Well, it was a sign that that serpent had been cursed. Cursed is everyone that is lifted up on a tree, says the Old Testament law. What's the rationale to that? Well, the tree was to be the source of blessing to man. The tree was to provide shade and warmth and fruit and material for man. But when man is hanging on a tree, dying on a tree, that's like the whole of creational order is turned upside down. And instead of the tree being a blessing to man, the tree becomes a curse to man. Cursed, says the Old Testament law, is every man that hangs on a tree. That serpent lifted up on a pole is a sign of a curse. And then God's people are to look in faith to a cursed object in the form of a serpent as a way of their salvation? Oh, yes. Now, we have to say this delicately, but it's true to the Word of God. When God the Father looked down upon His Son upon the cross, He saw a serpent. He saw an ugly figure. For he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. All the ugliness of sin was heaped upon the Lord Jesus Christ as he hung upon the cross. That serpent-like character was pushed upon him, not that he sinned, but it was imputed to him. And as you look to that cursed one hanging upon a tree, all of your curses are removed and you are healed, even as Israel was healed in the wilderness. The law of Moses, why it finds its fulfillment in the covenant death of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the covenant with David, once more again, you can see how even in the daily walk of the Christian, the covenant and the cross are bound together. The cross and the covenant are inevitably separated from or cannot be separated from one another. One of the most striking things of the life of David is the chastening that he receives from the hand of the Lord. You remember when God entered into covenant with David, he says, If you and your sons walk after my commandments, then I will bless them. But if they disobey, then I will chasten them with the rod of men and with the stripes of men. And here is David, the man after God's own heart. And what does he do? He sins an awful sin. He commits adultery and murder. Finally, after a year of hardening his heart against the conviction of the Holy Spirit, he is confronted with Nathan the prophet, thou art the man. David's heart is broken because he is a man after God's own heart. I have sinned against the Lord, he says. And Nathan responds, the Lord has forgiven your sin. What a relief. The Lord has already forgiven your sin, but, says Nathan the prophet, you will suffer under the chastening hand of God because you were a public figure and committed this awesome sin. Now here is David, and he receives from the hand Of the Lord, that blessing of forgiveness. And he receives also the chastening of the Lord through the rest of his life. And yet, even in that context, he's able to write psalm after psalm after psalm after psalm, praising God and thanking God and giving glory to God. Why? Because he knows that even that chastening is a loving chastening. Even that admonition from the Lord is a loving admonition. Because the Lord loves you, he chastens you. And you can praise and adore him. You parents know that moment that breaks your heart more than any other. This hurts me more than you, you say, and it really does. When you discipline your child and oh, when the child turns and grabs you around the neck. After that chastening, oh, how it melts your heart to have that wonderful union even in a context of chastening. Because of the covenant and the cross bound together, you can live every day with that kind of relationship. You can be absolutely confident that whatever comes into your life comes from the loving hand of your Father who is bound in covenant to you through the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, we get then to the consummation of the covenant. All of those old covenants, all of those Old Testament shadows are realized in the new covenant realities. The realities, the shadows of the dealing with sin in the Old Testament is realized in perfection in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament Now, what does that mean to you practically? Listen to these words of Paul, where he says, I have been, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Christian brothers and sisters, with this massive cross that is the center of history and of all the motions of nations, can there be any other center of your life than the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ? The Apostle Paul said, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world is crucified unto me and I unto the world. Yes. Take up your cross today. Die to yourself. Your reason for living is to be united with Christ in his cross. Oh, but I don't want to die, you say. I don't want that suffering. Oh, no, just a minute. That suffering is a dying to sin. That suffering is a dying to unrighteousness. The only thing that God is going to ask you to die to is to sinfulness within yourself. And as you die to sin, you come to life in Jesus Christ. And you can come to life. And you can die to sin only as you set your eyes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Only as you in faith look and set your gaze upon him understand the wonders of the world in which you live by seeing the wonders of the cross of our lord jesus christ let us pray gracious god and heavenly father we thank you for grace grace that has brought the Son of God into the world to die for sinners. And we ask you now that you will show grace to us that we would be willing to die to all of that sin and self that is within us that we may serve our Savior. O Lord Jesus Christ, deliver us from the last remnants of sin that we may not crucify again the Son of God afresh, that we may not put to shame openly the Son of God, in his suffering. But let us with joy give glory to the cross and to Christ crucified. For we ask in his name, amen.